This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Chalk. As we noted a couple of weeks ago when we described the history of the 10-foot pole, our favorite fantasy games have oddly extensive equipment. And while some of the items appear small, innocuous, maybe even useless, there's usually a lot more to them than meets the eye. And whereas modern, sophisticated gamers might dismiss them as useless relics of a bygone era to be supplanted or discarded, those gamers might not realize what they've thrown away until it's too late. And they end up lost forever. Take, for example, chalk. Yes, chalk. It's been there on the equipment list of Dungeons & Dragons since the beginning, right alongside the aforesaid 10-foot pole, as a matter of fact. But unlike the 10-foot pole, whose uses are many and varied, but also completely non-obvious, chalk is pretty straightforward. At least for anyone exploring an underground labyrinth. You use it to mark the places you've been so you don't get lost. Or at least you used to. Before, everyone started gaming with poster maps or online where everyone just gets to see the map, and before dungeons shrunk from massive 13-level labyrinths beneath ancient castles whose maps would fill a notebook full of graph paper down to manageable spaces of 8 to 10 rooms laid out logically in which no one could possibly get lost. So who needs chalk anymore? The thing is, chalk is actually pretty interesting and complicated, a lot more so than you'd think, and it's been a part of human history for a lot longer than you might realize. And a few years ago, some very smart people weren't nearly as dismissive of chalk as the gamers we've had at our tables when their chalk supply suddenly vanished. Smart, modern gamers won't be so dismissive of chalk either once they learn a thing or two about labyrinths. So let's talk about chalk. Hopefully you know what chalk is. It's a soft white mineral that powders easily. And it's that soft, powdery property that makes it very useful. If you rub chalk on a surface with any amount of roughness at all, it'll rub off a healthy amount of white powdery material and leave a prominent mark. So it's great for visibly marking surfaces but the powder is also pretty light and easily brushed or washed off. So it's also great for visibly and temporarily marking surfaces. And if you're familiar with chalk, it's probably because you learned about it in school. Well, you probably didn't learn about it. You learned on it. You learned with it. Because chalk and the accompanying blackboard were actually one of the most revolutionary inventions in modern school education. Yes, you heard us correctly. The thing is, the moment we invented formal education, we needed a way for students and teachers to be able to write stuff down. Lots of stuff. To take notes and work exercises. And to do so disposably. A student's exercises and notes aren't meant to last forever. They just need to survive long enough for the student to pass the test. After that, no one cares about them anymore. And throughout pretty much all of human history, all of the best methods of writing have been either time-consuming or expensive, or both. See, today, paper and ink and pens and pencils are fairly cheap, but that's a luxury of our modern world. 
As late as the 19th century, ink and paper in any form was just too expensive to hand out in volumes to every student in every school. Now, you may not realize it, but the ancient Babylonians and Sumerians had classroom education systems, more or less. And so did the Greeks and the Romans after them, to some extent. They all had to deal with the same problem. How could students write stuff down quickly, easily, and disposably? And the solution, at least for the ancient folks, was to give each student a tablet made of wet clay and a sharpened stick called a stylus. The student could inscribe notes in the tablet in angular cuneiform, the written language of Mesopotamia. And then they could smooth the clay tablet out to erase their work and start with a fresh, clean tablet. Moreover, if someone did want to preserve something forever, they could simply bake the tablet to harden the clay, thus making a permanent document, etched in stone, as it were. And this solution worked for a long time. When classroom-style education returned to the world, thanks mainly to Prussian ruler Friedrich the Great back in the 1700s, who was a great believer in formalized education and whose ideas spread to the colonial United States and exploded in popularity with the Industrial Revolution, educators faced the same problems. And they hit on basically the same solution. A flat piece of slate or wood could be marked with a stick of charred or painted wood. And it worked well enough. But there was one problem. There was no way for a teacher to present a lesson or problem or set of notes to a class as a whole. The teacher could only dictate, and each student would have to copy their own version of what the teacher said. Then, in 1801, in Edinburgh, Scotland, a geography teacher named James Pillins hung a large piece of slate on the wall in his classroom and changed everything. He'd invented the chalkboard. And then, at the West Point Academy in America, an instructor named George Barron adopted Pillin's idea. Meanwhile, in America, the railway system was becoming a huge thing. It had connected the entire country. Most importantly, it connected the prairies and western territories where new schools were popping up everywhere with the slate mines in Vermont, Maine, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Maryland, and New York. As a result, there was a boom in the slate business, and every new school soon had a slate chalkboard in every classroom. But what actually is chalk? Well, it's a mineral, as we said, a rock. But that's not really doing it justice, because it's actually a pretty ancient mineral. And we mean ancient in two ways. First, it's ancient in that humans have been using it a long time. Second, it's ancient in that it's actually made of the corpses of prehistoric sea creatures. Oh yeah. See, chalk is a sedimentary mineral, which is one of the three main types of minerals. What that means is that it's made up of small grains, sediments, which get deposited somewhere, and then they get cemented together by time, pressure, and chemical processes. And the sediments that make up chalk are the shells of coccolithophores, Coccolithophores are a type of plankton, microscopic living things that drift along in large bodies of water. Now, you've probably heard of plankton, and you might think of it as a very specific creature, or a class of closely related creatures. But the word plankton is actually a very broad word that refers to all sorts of bacteria, plants, protozoa, and even animals. There's lots of different creatures that make up plankton. 
The defining characteristic of plankton is that they do not have the power to swim against water currents. That's why the word plankton comes from the Greek word meaning drifter. And though most plankton are microscopic or very small, size isn't actually part of the definition. In fact, jellyfish are classified as plankton. But the plankton we're talking about, coccolithophores, are very small. In fact, they are a single-celled type of algae. But what's important is that they extract calcium from the ocean water and use it to form hard spherical shells around their single-cell bodies. Those shells are called coccoliths, which means seed of rock in Greek. And the name coccolithophore means forming a seed of rock. And they drift through the ocean. As phytoplankton, they drift along in the water, extracting nutrients from the water and energy from the sun. And of course, getting eaten by all sorts of other things, including whales. And when a coccolithophore dies, its calcium carbonate shell remains and ends up deposited on the sea floor. And while individual plankton are very tiny, there's a lot of them. And those layers of calcium carbonate are pressed together under the weight of seawater and mud, and over many eons, they solidify into chunks of mineral chalk. And then, when the seawater recedes or geological activity brings the seafloor up above the water, you have chalk deposits. And a huge amount of such chalk was formed from sea life after the Cretaceous period that ended 65 million years ago and ultimately ended up sitting exposed on the surface of Europe. Have you heard of the famous White Cliffs of Dover in Kent, England? Or their counterpart across the water in France, the Cape of the White Nose, a.k.a. Cap Blanc Ney? Well, that's chalk in those rocks. And there's more chalk all across France, Germany, Denmark, and much of Western continental Europe. While we're on the subject of minerals, we should point out that slate is also a mineral. It's a dark-colored mineral that is fairly smooth in appearance, but is actually rough and grainy on a microscopic level. And since slate is dark and rough and chalk is white and powders easily, chalk marks show up quite prominently on slate. Slate is also very useful as a marking surface because it tends to break easily into thin layered sheets. And not to be the cause of any juvenile jokes such as the ones we used to laugh at in natural science class while the teacher was writing this word on the chalkboard, but the way a rock naturally fractures is called its cleavage. Slate has flat cleavage. Unlike chalk, though, slate is a metamorphic rock. That is to say, it started its existence as one type of rock and then was exposed to extreme temperatures and pressures and so had its fundamental nature changed. To metamorphose means to change form. The third type of rock is igneous rock, which is formed when molten magma or lava cools or hardens. But we digress. Now, we mentioned that chalk was pretty ancient. And that's not just because the chalk we use today is made of the corpses of 65 million year old water plants, but also because humans have been using chalk to mark up rock walls since before history. The earliest chalk drawings actually date back to the Stone Age, when prehistoric humans discovered that the mineral would leave a white mark on a cave wall, or a black mark, or some other color. See, 
colored chalk occurs naturally just like white chalk does. It occurs because of impurities made of other minerals or elements. Carbon in the chalk gives it a black color, and iron gives it a reddish color. And around the 15th and 16th centuries, artists started purposely pigmenting their chalk to use as an artistic medium. And thus was born a new type of artist in Italy in the 16th century, the Madonnerie, or street artist. The Madonnery traveled across Italy, plying their art at festivals and celebrations using chalk, coal, and other medium to draw directly on the street. They primarily drew religious images, especially portraits of the Madonna, an icon of the Virgin Mary. And if you don't remember what an icon is, go back to the gelatinous cube episode. We explain it there. Passers-by and festival-goers would watch the Madonnery ply their art and toss them coins. The practice spread across Europe, and by the 1800s it reached London. And the London chalk artists were called screevers, which comes from the Italian word to write. And they were so called because they often included little moral messages in their art. And various pop culture works immortalized the screevers of the late 1800s and early 1900s, including the works of George Orwell and Disney's 1964 film Mary Poppins. But these days, the screevers have faded away in most places. And in many schools, concerns about allergens have led them to discard chalk in favor of whiteboards and dry erase markers. But there's at least one group of people who, a few years ago, went beyond clinging to their chalk to actually hoarding the stuff, rather than give it up. Mathematicians. What happened was this. David Eisenbud, the director of the Mathematical Sciences Research Institute, was visiting Japan, and a mathematician friend claimed that the Japanese had better chalk than anyone else in the world. And he handed Eisenbud a stick of chalk manufactured by the Hagaromo Bungu Company. Hagaromo Full Touch Chalk. Eisenbud instantly fell in love with the chalk, with its smoothness and the brightness of the line it left on the chalkboard. And thereafter, despite the expense and difficulty of importing it, it became the only chalk he would use. And he told his friends about it. And they told their friends. And soon, it became something of a legend in the world of academic mathematics. All sorts of superstitions grew up around it. It was said it was impossible to write an incorrect formula or theorem with Hagoromo full-touch chalk and mathematicians all over the world started importing it. The problem was, the rest of the world was moving on from chalk. As we mentioned, schools have moved away from blackboards to greenboards to whiteboards and electronic solutions. Chalk is going away, and Hagaromo, like many chalk manufacturers, couldn't make ends meet. And so, in 2015, they announced they were closing their doors and mathematicians all over the world started buying up the remaining stock and hoarding it. This really happened. Seriously, they stockpiled it. They sold it and traded it amongst themselves. They treasured it. Many ended up with multiple decades worth of supply. But even so, they started rationing it. Now, this story has a bittersweet ending. Hagaromo did close. But they sold their equipment to another company, along with the formula, 
And that company has been manufacturing the Hagaromo full-touch chalk. At the time of this writing, you can buy it at Amazon. A 72-piece box goes for less than 30 US dollars. But the mathematicians who loved it, they say it isn't the same. And original boxes of Hagaromo full-touch are still coveted and going for hundreds of dollars on Amazon Marketplace and eBay. But unlike those mathematicians, modern gamers are much less appreciative of chalk. These days, gamers don't even bother bringing chalk into the dungeon, partly because, as we've noted, modern dungeons are far smaller and far less maze-like than they used to be, and partly because modern GMs coddle their players by providing maps, but also because modern gamers think they can get out of any maze with one simple rule right-hand rule. Now, the right-hand rule is one of the oldest, easiest, and most well-known ways to find your way out of a maze, or rather, to find your way from the entrance of a maze to the exit of a maze. All you have to do is stick out your right hand, keep it on the wall, and start walking. As long as you keep your right hand along the wall, even following the wall around dead ends, you'll eventually get out of the maze. A variant is, of course, to only make right-hand turns. It works the same way. And modern gamers now all know this rule and think they're so clever when they sneer at their fellow party members and say, put your chalk away, lads. I'll get us out of here. We just need to turn right. Except it doesn't always work. First, the right-hand rule only works if you use it from the start. If you get a little way into the maze and then start following the right-hand rule or the left-hand rule if you're sinister, if you start using the rule after you become lost, you might never get out. That's because the interior of a maze can contain so-called island walls, which are not connected to any other walls. In such a case, you could end up just making a circuit around such a wall and never make any progress. But so what? The moment you enter a maze, just start using the right-hand rule. Never not use it, and you're fine, right? Wrong. There are some mazes that can't be solved with a right-hand rule, even if you use it from the beginning. Specifically, if the exit or goal of the maze doesn't lie along the edge of the maze, if the goal is somewhere in the middle, the right-hand rule can fail if there are any circuits or loops in the maze. And there likely are a few. Basically, the entire maze can end up being an island wall if the goal isn't along the edge of the maze. And the right-hand rule also can't help you find your way out of the three-dimensional or multi-floor maze without some odd modifications to your spatial reasoning, like considering the upward direction to be the right of north and the left of east. Yes, that's easy to keep in your head. And given that the dungeons that you encounter in Dungeons and Dragons often have goals somewhere in the middle, often cover multiple floors, and might have closed loops in them, and they are also occupied by everything from gelatinous cubes to minotaurs, you can't risk running around in circles trying to remember whether down is to the left or west or not. So let us teach you a way to solve any maze or labyrinth of any design with nothing more than a piece of chalk and a few simple rules. The trick was invented by a French architect, photographer, and scientific author named Charles-Pierre Trumeau, and it's called Trumeau's Algorithm. 
Now, very little is known of Tremeau or his personal life, and only a small number of his photographs still exist. The ones that do exist indicate that he was a much better author and architect than he was a photographer. That said, his writings on evolution and social theory are a bit of a mixed bag, having been roundly criticized by some, but lauded by Karl Marx of all people. But what we're concerned about here is that Trimeau invented a trick for solving mazes that would solve any maze given enough time. And his technique also led to the development of an important mathematical tool called the Trimeau tree, which later became useful in certain branches of mathematics as well as in computer science. To follow Trimeau's algorithm, all you need is a way to make some marks on the wall of the maze, like a piece of chalk. And to start, choose a path at random, mark it, and follow it to the next intersection. At the next intersection, choose a path at random, mark it, and follow it to the next intersection. Keep choosing paths at random and marking them until you hit a dead end. Once you hit a dead end, double back to the last intersection, mark that path as a dead end, and pick a different path at random. Mark it and follow it to the next intersection. Now, that might sound like blundering through the maze at random checking every path, but the magic of the algorithm appears because, eventually, you'll come to an intersection with a path you've taken before. And you might have to take a path twice, that's okay. Because there might be branches off the path you didn't try yet, right? But here's the deal. When you take a path a second time, mark it again. And if you ever come to a path you've already taken twice, don't take it again. Ever. It will never get you out. And that will stop you from going in circles and weird mazes. Beyond that, you just always need to choose unexplored paths if they are available. Trimo's algorithm will solve all mazes, even the ones the right-hand rule won't solve. It may not solve them quickly or efficiently, but it will solve them. And unlike many modern maze-solving computer algorithms, it has the advantage of being a system a human brain can follow from inside a maze with nothing more than a piece of chalk. Oh, and the paths that you've marked exactly one time will always lead you back to the start in case you need to retreat. So, maybe the next time one of your fellow adventurers pulls out a stick of chalk, maybe don't tell him to toss it away because you've got an easier way. You never know what you'll lose. It just might be yourself. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>